Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think is an online forum for big ideas from the world's most creative thinkers and doers. With the Think Again podcast, we're striking out into uncharted and dangerous territory. We want to see what happens when experts are asked to respond to interview clips on topics they may or may not have any knowledge of. We want to jump into the unknown with no script, no preparation. Every week, our producers dig deep into Big Think's archives to find ideas that are innovative, timely, or timelessly thought-provoking, and the clips are always a surprise to my guests and to me. Today, I am very psyched to be joined by Jesse Ventura. He's the former governor of Minnesota, former U.S. Navy frogman, a pro wrestler and movie actor, and the author of seven books. His latest book, American Conspiracies, explores things the government doesn't want you to know about, including the corporate conspiracy to deny climate change. Welcome to Think Again, Jesse. Nice to be here. I cannot wait to get into our conversation with today's guest, Jesse Ventura, but before I do that, I just want to ask you, when you get a chance, listeners, to please take five minutes, go online to podsurvey.com forward slash think. One of the things that's going to keep this show on the air and free for you to listen to is advertising. And we want to make sure that the ads that we're running are for things that you are interested in. So if you can take this short survey online, it'll just ask you some questions about yourself and your preferences. It is completely anonymous. You don't have to give your name or your email. After the survey, if you want, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. and. This will just give us really valuable information that will make sure that the ads that come on this show are of interest to you. Thanks so much. Once again, that's podsurvey.com forward slash think. That introduction, I'm frightened. What are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's the idea, to terrify our guests. No, I don't think I don't, I don't think you're easily frightened. Okay. Your bio says you're not afraid of questioning authority. We know this to be true of you. Were you a total pain in the neck to raise as a kid? Not at all. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I was what was called a latchkey kid. I had two working parents. We were middle class, South Minneapolis. When I would get up in the morning to go to school, my parents were already gone to work. And when I'd get home from school, they hadn't come home yet. From like what age? From kindergarten all the way to high school. Mm. My parents were both World War II veterans, and not many people can say their mom was a nurse in North Africa in World War II. But uh, I was a latchkey kid, and then at lunchtime, I would go to the neighbor lady's house who my mom had to make me lunch, and then back to school again. Oh. There's nothing wrong with it, it has its good side. You know what the good side is? When you get home from school quick, change clothes, get back to the school, and you can hang out till dinner. Because <laughs> you ain't got no parents to tell you, wait, you got to do this, you got to do that. Get home, change, and get out of there. Right. Well, and you seem to have survived <laughs> and, in my and day, turned out all right. In my day, kids used to go out alone. We used to do things in the neighborhood without the umbrella supervision that you see today in parenting. Yeah, and I bet you're of the mind that that's, that's better for kids in terms of learning about themselves, like well, discovering eventually stuff. you got to go out in the world. There, there's an old thing, and I, I used it at Harvard when I taught there. There's book smart and there's street smart. Well, you can bet when I grew up, I was street smart, even more so than book smart mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. The American conspiracies that you write about in your book aren't recorded in any official press or record. So if someone doesn't trust any of the mainstream sources of information, 
And maybe this comes back to street smarts, I don't know. How do you separate what's true from what's crazy? Generally common sense. Put a common sense to what happened. And okay. tell yourself, does this make sense? Let me give an example. In the case of the killing of President Kennedy, okay. Lee Harvey Oswald, okay, he was initially arrested for not buying a ticket to the afternoon movie. All right. They saw him, the witness said, go into the theater. And it was one of these old theaters where the ticket thing was in front and then you went in back here. Sure. A salesman in another store saw him sneak around the corner and go in and he didn't buy a ticket. So he called the police. Now imagine you're the police dispatcher for a moment. Here's common sense. You've just had the murder of the president an hour earlier. You had the murder of Officer Tippett, a Dallas PD guy, about a half hour earlier, and you get a call that somebody didn't buy a 50-cent ticket to go to the afternoon movie. As a police dispatcher, how would you handle that? You'd probably tell the guy, hey, we got bigger fish to fry. The president's been murdered. A cop's been murdered. I ain't got time to deal with somebody not paying to go to the movies. Do you know what the response was to Oswald? Here's your common sense. Okay. Ten squad cars, 20-some cops, and the news media show up to arrest a guy who went into a theater without buying a ticket. Does that seem logical? So Wait, does it okay. seem logical? I'll question you now. Does that <laughs> seem logical? No. No, it doesn't. No. So that's what you use to apply. So all of that makes sense. What I will say in pushing back is that common sense throughout history has not always been the most effective bellwether of determining what, you know, peop, com, people's common sense, quote unquote, differs. Differs yeah. from person to person, sure. from culture to culture. Yeah. You know, that's why we have things like science. Well, so that we things, can well, try when to things empirically, are out of the ordinary, yeah. when something happens that ordinarily will be dealt with in a certain way and it's right. not, sure, that's your sign. Fair enough. Okay, so let's get into the meat of the show. To recap quickly, here's how Think Again works. Our producers have chosen short interview clips for us to listen to. We don't know what subject they're on. They're a surprise to me, too. And we're going to just go wherever the conversation goes. Okay. So, we ready? Yep. All right. This is from author Esther Perel. Okay. On the difference between sexuality and eroticism. So we're going there, apparently. One way to distinguish between sexuality and eroticism, which I think is actually a profound distinction, is that animals have sex. And it is nature, it is the primary urge, it is the instinct, it is procreative. We have an erotic life. We transform sexuality, we socialize sexuality through our imagination. And the central agent of the erotic act is our creativity, our imagination, our ability to imagine ourselves in an act in which we may have a blissful time with multiple orgasms without touching anybody, just because we can imagine ourselves in it. We can envision the act without having to actually enact it. And it is the cultivation of pleasure for its own sake. But I think modernity really narrowed the erotic into its bare sexual meaning. The erotic is profoundly unproductive. It is a radiant state, it is a moment of interlude, you know, in between all our productive life, when you are actually just feeling good for its own sake. And that is a very different conception of sexuality, no longer just as something that you do, but as a space you enter, a place you go. 
you cannot force creativity like you cannot force desire. You can force people to have sex, you can never force them to want it. The wanting is one of the last things that remains profoundly a part of our sovereignty and our freedom. And in that sense, they really meet. You know, it seems to me that what she's talking about is something that runs sort of profoundly against the grain of where, where American culture is at right now. I mean, put sexuality aside even for a second. She's talking about pure, non-productive pleasure, like just enjoying life for the mm -hmm. sake of life. When I look at the society that we inhabit, the culture we inhabit, it seems to me that we are becoming more and more intensely focused on productivity often at the expense of living our lives. Yep. What do you think about that? I agree with you. Walk down any crowded street here in New York today and count the number of people that are looking at their phones as they walk. I find it personally amusing because it doesn't apply to me. You don't, you don't have never, a smartphone? I've, I've never owned a cell phone. I've made it my life's mission now not to. I want to be able to put on my gravestone. He never owned a cell phone. <laughs> if I'm fortunate to live 20 more years, I might be the only person. So I can relate to what she was talking about because I think I live a life of what she's talking about there. And I chose to do that too when I moved to Mexico because when I moved to Mexico, it's just my wife and I off the grid. Right. The only world that I live in off the grid is the world I see. And I do that for six months. And I think that it's wonderful and beneficial. Remember, I believe in evolution. I think you do. So we're constantly evolving. What will be the evolvement of this technical world? The only thing getting worked out on kids today is their thumbs usually. Where in my day, you went out and climbed trees. You went out and did physical things. You didn't have all these techno things to live life for you, where you live subconsciously on the screen. If you're, if you're the guy fighting the big battle on the screen and hacking people's heads off <laughs> and doing what all these games have you to do, well, you're not living your life. You're living, what do they call it? Vicariously. Vicariously through the screen. You're becoming something on a screen. Right. Well, what's interesting, though, is that that's also a kind of... I mean, she's talking about the exercise of imagination, and yeah. she's saying that well, humans have this unique capacity to use our imagination. How do we imagine with the screen world we have today? It takes it away from you. You're not imagining anything. You're looking at a screen. It's doing it for you. Yeah. Compare reading a book to TV. Right. Do you yeah. feel the same way about movies? Like, are you, do you a fan of any films? Like Mo Movies have changed for me because of the fact I did them. Okay. And I hate to say it, but for me anyway, when you've done, and I've done probably 14, 15, I haven't kept track of how many I've done through the years. All of a sudden, when you go to a movie now, it's no longer entertainment. You're watching it from a critical, why did they do that shot? Boy, the lighting was weird on that. All of a sudden, you don't get caught up in the fantasy of the film because you know what happens but behind wait, the wait, scenes. But wait, 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 wait. Go back to something you were saying a second ago. 
if you are doing that kind of critical distance thing that you're talking about, if you're like, oh, the lighting, the actor, I don't do the, it by choice. I, no, but if one, but if one is doing that, from what you were just saying a second ago, that's a good thing because your brain is active as opposed to just being sucked into the film and being a passive recipient. That's true, but that ain't what films are for. <laughs> films are the fantasy. When you go to a film, it's to take your mind into a fantasy world that you may never. I mean, Pirates of the Caribbean. Okay. That's probably the last real movie I went to a theater to see, and the major reason I went, I wanted to see Keith Richards, and he stole the film. <laughs> He's in one scene and steals the whole film. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm you not know? trying to catch you out, but you are also saying, so just so that we can, like, dig into this, living in a fantasy vis-a-vis -vis sitting there killing monsters with your phone is a bad thing. So you're saying that there's a value in it, like in the old days, the way movies were. Yeah, well, there's a value to it. Well, there's even a value to playing on that, but limit it. People's lives are evolving around the cell phone. Should be the other way around. The cell phone should be evolving around the people. I want to go in a slightly different direction. I want to ask you about, like, it sounds ideal to me what you're talking about, living six months in that off the grid well, in Mexico. I live two lives. It sounds lovely. When you were, you know, governor of Minnesota, when you were wrestling, like, you, your life can't have been that balanced like that, right? You were probably running around all the time like a maniac. Your business. Yeah. There was a point at my, my wrestling career, I wrestled 63 consecutive nights in a row. What? Yeah. 60, and, I, and there's guys that would destroy that record. Roddy Piper went 90-some in a row. The late Roddy Piper just died. Yeah, yeah, Roddy, yeah, went, yeah. Roddy went 90 some. But I, I one time wrestled 63 consecutive nights in a row. When you're living that life, you are focused. It's no different than I went through basic underwater demolition seal training. For five months, I knew nothing what was going on in the outside world. I had to be focused on making it through this training. That was my entire life. And when I wrestled, it was focused wrestling, 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 because I wanted to achieve greatness. I wanted to be as great as I could be. And the only way you can be great is to focus. Now when I'm older, today I can live the double life in Mexico because I've paid the price to get it. So the gratification was delayed. You knew what your goal was, what prize you were going oh, after. Never. You were willing to... I was very much like Yogi Berra. Remember the great Yogi Berra when of he course. said, come to a fork in the road, take it? I never knew which fork to take. I lived life. I never dreamed I was... There was no obsession in me to be governor of Minnesota. <laughs> if you'd have said that to me when I was 30 years old, I'd have said, are you crazy? What's the matter with you? <laughs> At the height of my wrestling career, somebody said, you're going to end up the governor of Minnesota. <laughs> I would have said, You're, you belong in the loony bin. My life has not been a life of planning. My life has been a life like wrestling ad lib. Do you Thing, think that's a better way to live or just I don't for know. you? Like, I don't know, yeah, yeah. but that's the way I chose to live. Gotcha. I can't tell you if it's better or worse. I don't know what tomorrow's gonna bring. I have no idea, but I'll deal with tomorrow when it gets here. That sounds good. I think we're ready for the next one. Let's, right. see what, let's see what they've got for us next. So this is fun. We're going in a different direction here. This is Brian Green, a theoretical physicist, talking about aliens. Oh, boy. Like most people, I look out on a dark night, and I see 
all of the stars out there. And then I know about all the galaxies out there, you know, hundreds of billions of stars per galaxy, hundreds of billions of galaxies. Now we know that many of those stars have planetary systems and you can't help but just have a sense of with all of that out there, there's got to be other life that somehow is populating some of those planets. But the big question to me is not so much whether there's other life out there. Is there intelligent life out there? Now look, some will say that we don't have a single example of intelligent life in the universe, right? But putting that to the side, what I mean is, is there life out there that can build radio telescopes that could possibly communicate with us? And I don't think we know enough about what it takes for alien life to become intelligent in this sense of building radio telescopes to have any sense if it's likely or unlikely. You know, is it some strange coincidence of having big planets nearby like Jupiter that help deflect asteroids that allow enough time for life on this planet to have gotten to the point? Are there other contingencies that we don't know about that are so rare that maybe intelligent life happens only here? We don't know. But shooting from the hip, speaking from the gut, yeah, I think there's probably alien life out there, probably intelligent life too. When I heard him talk, I laughed to myself because I've done the same thing. Down in Mexico where I live off the grid, there's no electricity. When I look at the stars when I'm down there, it's immense. And I actually, when I see a shooting star, I watch it break into five pieces like fireworks. That's how good you can see it down there. And I've sat on my deck, like he said, and you look out into this vast of stars and you say to yourself, how can there not be? There's got to be something out there. I, I always remember a friend of mine, we were way up north one night, sitting by a campfire and we're leaning back, looking at the stars. And I think, I don't know what we were listening to type of music. And my friend kind of mumbled, oh yeah, we're the only ones. You know, meaning, yeah, right. we're, you know, yeah, right. we're the only things that looking out there. And we both burst out laughing <laughs> because how could you possibly believe in this endless universe that there isn't some other life forms? Probably how many we'll never know, but there's got to be some type of life beyond the planet Earth. It seems impossible that there wouldn't be. I mean, given the way evolution works and the way things become increasingly complex over time, you would think that something akin to intelligence. Well, look at the latest discovery on Mars. There's liquid water there. Yeah. Well, if there's liquid water, there's life. Right. It's that simple. And did you hear the thing about this thing that's here? I watched on Bill Maher with that Neil deGrasse. The, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, yeah, he's unbelievable. I love him. He's on Big Think often. Oh, yeah. well, have you seen that little thing that lives? That it's an ugly little thing? What is it? It doesn't <laughs> fit in to anything on Earth. Crazy. If it dries out, you just put water on it, it comes back to life. Water bear, maybe. I think I know what yeah, you Water mean. bear. Yes. That's it. Okay. That's it. All right. The water bear. Now, they can't explain that thing here. They think that this thing came from Mars here because they have no way of tying it to anything on Earth, scientifically. Well, it's, like, it's almost like the missing link between man and monkey. Well, I don't think we can end on a note of greater wonder and amazement than that. Jesse Ventura, it has Thank been you. so great having you on Thanks. Think Again. Thanks for being with me today. My pleasure.
Big things been added since 2008. Now they got think again, and it's extremely great. Jason Gatz has got lots to say, but so do his guests, and he don't get in their way. He knows what's better than to talk over the likes of George Decay. Simon Rusty, Wendy Suzuki, and Bill Nye all chatting it up about ideas that surprise. You're gonna love listening to these gals and guys. If I've ever been this engaged by a podcast, I know not when. I used to think that I'd heard it all. It's time to think again. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. I want to give a special shout out to Matt Farley, who wrote that rocking song you just heard in about an hour and has written over 10,000 other songs. Uh, next week, we're joined by the luminous poet, rapper, and actor Saul Williams. See you then.